turn to a message on the gospel life, I encourage you to take up your copy of the Word and open it there with me to Philemon, this small little one-chapter letter written by Paul to Philemon. You find it there wedged between um, Titus and Hebrews. So take up your copy of the Word and let's read together, beginning at verse 1, the letter in its entirety. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand, I will repay, not to mention to you that You owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. For I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we come before you now to briefly consider this short letter. Asking for your Holy Spirit to bless our meditation. We give you thanks for Christ who has paid in full the penalty for our sins 
and most generously given to us his righteousness, a righteousness we don't deserve, but which nonetheless is ours in him. Teach us and build us up in the truth and exhortation of your word. We pray that your spirit would impress upon us through this portion of your word what it means to live out and practice the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would see it portrayed not only in Paul's ministry, but we would be encouraged to practice it in our own lives today. May your spirit bless this word to our hearts, equipping us, strengthening us, enabling us to do that which you have called us to do. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, later this morning we'll have the privilege of witnessing with our very own eyes and touching with our own hands and to taste with our mouths the gospel of Jesus Christ in the sacrament. The word made sensible to us for our benefit. And I assume that you were gathered here in this place this morning because you have made a profession of faith and have believed upon the gospel. But for now, I want to ask you a question. What difference does it make? What difference does the gospel make in the way we live our lives? Does the gospel make any difference in our daily lives and in the world around us? As we behold and engage the world, that's often the challenge, isn't it? Skeptics we find everywhere. You may hear them say, I I don't doubt the sincerity of your conviction about what you believe. No doubt you believe with your whole heart. But practically speaking, how is it relevant? What difference does it make in the way you look at the world around you? What difference does it make in the way you live your life? We need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to live our lives in the light of what Jesus Christ has done? I think so often we reduce or narrow the gospel to simply being the root of our justification. Our souls being saved, that we're someday going to be in heaven. And then we set it aside as a fond memory and strike out on our own to face whatever life has to offer. But the Apostle Paul understood that it is much broader than that, much more comprehensive, much richer, much fuller. It touches, informs, and beautifies every part of our lives. It is broad and sweeping in its application, even to the point of having direct bearing on our vocation and how we do our work. It colors our outlook on life, our relationships, our family dynamics, and how we understand and respond to every situation we encounter, whether it be good or whether it be challenging. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. If we have too small an understanding of the gospel 
and we do. And if we have a tendency to think of the gospel as merely a propositional truth that we believe, and so we are saved at some point in the past, then we need to recalibrate our thinking and see that the gospel is that which saves, yes, but it is also that which continues to save and that which motivates our sanctification and is found at the core of the Christian in every part of his life. We are saved and called to live a gospel life. When we read the Apostle Paul's epistles, we see the great theologian being used and directed by the Holy Spirit to teach and equip and to build up the church. There's a familiar structure in his letters where we see the principles and precepts and indicatives in the first part of the letter followed by the application and the imperatives in the second part of the letter. But this letter to Philemon is a bit different. In this letter, we have the privilege of seeing Paul living out his faith in a rather difficult situation and probably one that is much more pressing and consequential than we in our contemporary modern-day setting can easily understand. So it is important for us to know something of the background to the epistle, and that's, that's where we'll start this morning. So first, a little bit about the background and the setting. Paul, as you may recall, had been ministering in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, going from town to town, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. On that journey, it is likely that he did not go to the city of Colossae. But there was a man from that town, several days' journey from Ephesus, named Philemon. We see here in verse 19 that Philemon had been saved under Paul's ministry, probably at Ephesus, several years earlier. He had heard Paul preach, and by the power of of the Holy Spirit, Philemon came to the conviction that the good news of Jesus Christ was indeed the truth. <coughs> Philemon believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle was a mentor to him. He was a devoted friend and a follower of the apostle Paul. And apparently he was a man of some means, perhaps a well-to-do businessman. We know from our text that he had a slave by the name of Onesimus, whose name, interestingly enough, means useful, to benefit, or to profit. In fact, Philemon was sufficiently well off to have a house large enough to host the gathering of the church there. As we read the text and try to understand the situation, situation we, may, we may see the possibility that Onesimus may have stolen something from Philemon, at the time he ran away, like countless thousands of other runaway slaves, Onesimus fled to Rome, seeking to lose himself in the big city there, teeming with the large slave population. Though circumstances, through circumstances not recorded in Scripture, Onesimus met Paul and became a Christian. The apostle grew to love the runaway slave, and longed to keep Onesimus with him there in Rome, where he was providing a valuable service to Paul in his imprisonment. But by running away from Philemon, Onesimus 
had both broken Roman law and defrauded his master. Paul knew those issues had to be dealt with and decided to send Onesimus back to Colossae. Perhaps it was too hazardous for him to make the trip alone, maybe because of the danger of slave catchers. So Paul sent with him Tychicus, who was returning to Colossae with the epistle to the Colossians. We read of this in Colossians 4, verses 7 through 9. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the good news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all the things which are happening here. So along with Onesimus, Paul sent Philemon this beautiful, personal letter urging him to forgive Onesimus and welcome him back to service as a brother in Christ. So what about slavery in the Roman Empire? How do we understand that? This letter provides just a tiny glimpse into the early church's relationship to the institution of slavery. Slavery was widespread in the Roman Empire. According to some estimates, slaves constituted one-third of the population, perhaps 60 million or more, and it was, it was an accepted part of everyday life. In Paul's day, slavery went far beyond free labor, and I think we have a hard time even picturing this form of slavery. Though, and it sounds strange to our ears, but slaves could be just about anything in life. They could be doctors, musicians, teachers, artists, librarians, or accountants. They could, they could do just about any job, and, and sometimes the masters would even pass on their particular vocation and skill to their slaves. And sometimes the masters and slaves even became close friends. While still not recognizing them as persons under the law, the Roman Senate in A.D. 20 granted slaves accused of crimes the right to a trial. It also became more common for slaves to be given or to purchase their freedom. Some slaves enjoyed a favorable and profitable service under their masters and were even better off than many freemen because they were assured of their care and provision. However, however, the, the runaway slave, a slave like Onesimus, if caught and found guilty, could receive the death penalty. So we see that Onesimus was in a serious and precarious situation as a fugitive. And as we read Philemon, this letter to Philemon, we need to sense the gravity of Paul's request and even of Onesimus' compliance with Paul's instruction. Onesimus was taking a life-threatening leap of faith in returning to Philemon. But I think this letter, at its core, is a beautiful illustration of the gospel being applied in life. And so with this background, I would like for us to take a moment and consider that very heart of this letter, that picture, this illustration, if you will, of the gospel being lived out by these three men, by Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. First, we see Paul demonstrating a sacrificial love 
Onesimus, even offered to, offering to cover any debts that Onesimus may owe Philemon. Paul writes, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Charge it to my account. Isn't this very much like our Savior, Jesus Christ, who covers all of our debts before God? Yes, Jesus did indeed pay the price we owe for all of our sin debts before God. And He did this when He shed His holy, precious blood for you and for me on the cross. It is finished, Jesus cried. Paid in full, all your sins, dear friends, all the ways in which you have done wrong and offended God and hurt your neighbor. Jesus says of that whole thing, that whole mountain of debt, charge it to my account. And with that debt fully paid, fully forgiven, you are now free. You are now free. Free from under the bondage to sin and death. Free to love. Free to serve. Alive to God. Part of His family which will last forever. The benefits of His great salvation are innumerable and so very precious. And secondly, as Philemon considers Paul's appeal, he knows as a Christian that he is under obligation to forgive Onesimus. There really isn't any other option. No doubt Philemon was familiar with the Lord's instruction from Matthew 6. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel and at the heart of this letter. He who once was a slave is now to be forgiven and received as a brother in Christ. Forgiveness is something that we should all be eager and willing to extend to those who have offended us. Paul even indicated in writing to Philemon, without your consent... I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Paul expects Philemon to receive the exhortation as a Christian brother, and in all humility, then forgive Onesimus this huge debt, knowing how much he had already been forgiven in Christ. He could have commanded Philemon to do what was fitting. But instead, he appeals to him. He appeals to Philemon on the basis of the transforming power of the gospel. This transforming power of the gospel shaped how Paul appeals to Philemon. Paul, by rights, could have ordered Philemon to do what he said. He could have commanded him saying, Hey, I'm an apostle. You obey me. Instead, Paul appeals to Philemon in a spirit of gentle persuasion so that Philemon of his own volition would let love and forgiveness direct his actions. Paul calls Philemon his brother and tells him, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So we see here in this letter how the glorious gospel transforms relationships. 
the relationship of Paul to Onesimus, that of spiritual father and child. The relationship of Paul to Philemon, Paul appealing to him as a brother rather than ordering him as a superior. And the hoped-for relationship now of Philemon to Onesimus, brother to brother, not just master to slave. What empowered those transformed relationships was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the same gospel and the same power that will transform the relationships that we have right here in the church. How we treat one another in the body of Christ, in the family of God, the church, how we live our lives will be different. Will be different because we are Christians. It happened in the lives of Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon, and it will happen in our lives as well. It is happening in our lives as well. Love, mercy, grace, forgiveness. These are not just words on a page. These are realities in our lives. These are the ways we treat our brothers and sisters in the church. We are a family. We live in close relationship, but... We are not without sin. We are not a perfect people. We do hurt one another from time to time. We also know the reality of forgiveness, do we not? We ourselves have received forgiveness from God, and this is how we learn, we learn to forgive one another. We know the importance of a restored relationship. For God has restored us back to Himself through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can see in the way Paul writes to Philemon the love and grace that Paul had learned from Christ. It is demonstrated in how Paul appeals for Onesimus. He intercedes for Onesimus, just as Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is our advocate before the Father, Paul was an advocate for Onesimus. Paul is simply putting into practice the love he learned from Christ. And thirdly, isn't it easy to see ourselves in the position of Onesimus? We sympathize, well, of how difficult this leap of faith must have been in trusting Paul's counsel. And yet, we who were once slaves and in bondage to sin, find that we are completely at the mercy of our advocate, Christ Jesus. Jesus paid the price for our sin debt, and He stands before the Father as our advocate and mediator and makes the case that we are no longer slaves, but we have been engrafted into the family of God, given the spirit of adoption, and are now brothers and sisters and co-heirs in His kingdom. In the Father's forgiveness, we find a total and complete restoration beyond anything we can possibly imagine. And when we forgive our neighbor, when we truly and completely forgive one another as Christ forgave us, there is a beautiful restoration that happens. Relationships are restored and they grow deeper. The weight, there is a weight. The weight of sin is removed. Our hearts are refreshed. As Paul urged Philemon, yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh 
my heart in the Lord. This is what we desire and seek in the Christian life, which is characterized by gospel forgiveness. And one thing is for sure in this life. We will have many opportunities to forgive one another. While gospel forgiveness is at the heart of this illustrative letter, we see even more than forgiveness being lived out. We see thanksgiving to God and a recounting of His goodness and sovereignty. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, verse 4. The acknowledgement of every good thing, verse 6. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, acknowledging the sovereignty of God, even as Joseph was able to give God credit for his enslavement. For God meant it for good. We also see faith, joy, and love being manifest and expressed. Hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ, toward all the saints, verse 4. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, verse 7. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, verse 9. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord, verse 20. We also see kindness and gentleness and long-suffering and self-control from Paul. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, verse 10. Without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, but as it were, voluntary. Verse 14, receive him as you would me. Verse 17, in fact, if we looked closely, I believe that we would find the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit articulated in this short letter. You see, Paul's capacious intellectual grasp of the gospel was not stuck in his head, being only found in his brain and in his mouth, but it worked its way out, fully out and in, down into his heart and out his fingertips. He knew the power and the glory in the gospel life, and he wanted, he even expected, he expected this sort of fruit in the lives of the fellow Christians he knew. So now the question, how do you see yourself living out the gospel? We see how the Apostle Paul embodies the gospel and how he calls Philemon and Onesimus, these two formerly adversarial parties, to live out the gospel. Now how about you? Are you living out the gospel life day by day? Or are you falling short, failing to apply the gospel? When you sin, do you quickly repent and believe the gospel? I can think of any number of ways I fall short. We may not have slaves and we don't have masters to deal with, but, but there is strife in our lives. There are difficulties. There's enmity and perhaps there are factions among us that don't see eye to eye. What does the gospel look like in terms of reconciliation there? Or maybe there's ongoing strife in your home or in your marriage. Are there unforgiven sins or offenses? Offenses that have lingered far, far too long and that you have held to tightly. Or is there an atmosphere of love and forgiveness and grace which gives testimony to the vitality of the gospel in your home and in your life? 
What will the gospel look like in the home? Not only between the husband and wife, but also between parents and children, among extended family members. There's plenty of strife. I know this. There's friction. There's hard feelings. There are unresolved conflicts. Let the gospel abound in your life. How will the gospel make a difference in the way those matters are resolved? How will the gospel work itself out in the workplace tomorrow? How will you be like the Apostle Paul when he gives himself completely to reconcile these two parties and says, if there's anything that needs to be paid, charge it to my account. How will you do that at work or in the home? Giving of yourself completely for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the love of your brother or sister. Not being concerned first with your rights. Not concerned about getting satisfaction for wrongs that were inflicted upon you. But being truly Christ-like for the sake of the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of the changed heart you first received by the gospel. The message of the gospel that the Apostle Paul brought was not simply from the head and from the mouth. He didn't speak just a good message. He didn't simply write a compelling epistle. But he teaches us by example that the gospel must come, brothers and sisters, from, from the heart and be lived out in our actions and in our decisions and in our relationships. It is meant to be lived out. And so I challenge you and I challenge myself to live out the gospel, not by way of compulsion, for that would be counterproductive. We ought not to hear the word in such a way that we feel like we're being pummeled into a certain course of action. We should willingly apply the gospel to ourselves in our own situations, whether it's at work or at home or with someone who needs to hear the message or someone who is estranged from us or someone who is hurting Someone that we can truly be a blessing to. Draw the application. Live a gospel-centered, gospel-believing, gospel-loving life. Don't leave the gospel as some sort of historical marker in your past. Live it and lean on it. Lean on it in every moment of every day. Let the gospel soften your heart. Reshape your manner of thinking and grow you in love for God and for one another. As Paul would say, refresh my heart in the Lord. Or perhaps it would be better for me to say this morning, let us refresh one another's hearts in the Lord. And then let us together praise God for His goodness in Jesus Christ. So I want to close with what I believe is a, an apt and a moving illustration of the transforming power of the gospel and of forgiveness from the life of Corey ten Boom, who lived in Holland during World War II and helped many Jews escape the Nazis. No doubt many of you are familiar, of course, with her name, but also this story, but I, I find it very refreshing. Eventually, though she and her family were arrested and taken to a concentration camp where her father and her sister died, 
Corey survived the horrors of the German concentration camp Ravensbrück, and she was released in December of 1944. At the end of her book, The Hiding Place, she tells this story of speaking in a church and afterward meeting one of the men who had been a guard at Ravensbrook. She writes, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our own goodness that the world's healing hinges but on his when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Close quote. This is forgiveness. God forgives us, and then by his grace, he enables us to extend his forgiveness to others. Maybe there are individuals you can think of right now, right this very moment, that if they were standing in front of you with their hand outstretched, you would have a difficult time lifting your hand to receive that person and to genuinely forgive him or her. But in God's strength and by his grace, because we have been forgiven much, we too can forgive. This is the power of the gospel. This is the gospel life. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. 
We see our unworthiness and we see that we are very much like the runaway slave Onesimus. We are therefore so very thankful that our debt has been paid by another and that our sins have been removed far from us, as far as the east is from the west. And as we consider the glory of this gospel of Christ, lead us not only to believe, but also to live the gospel. Fill us with faith, joy, hope, and love. Make us patient, kind, long-suffering, and gentle. Cause peace and goodness to abound in our lives. And do this, we ask, for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.